Okay, making sure it's in order back there. Okay, so as introduced, my talk is focusing on biogeography and its implications for environmental stewardship. And we've had a number of talks highlighting that a general Christian understanding of both seeing the universe as God's creation and therefore worth caring for and our mandate as stewards over creation. This in turn requires us to understand how creation works. If we're going to effectively take care of it, we need to know what effects our actions will have, things like that. A lot of my work lately has been on freshwater habitats. They're not the only ones, but freshwater habitats generally have particularly acute conservation needs. A lot of them have very high diversity and they're often highly endemic, also very highly impacted by humans. We use water a lot, whether transport, drinking, irrigation, things like that. <clears throat> How do we prioritize what to conserve? And one key issue is figuring out, well, here's a population, looks a little different from these others, but is it really something unique that needs to be a priority in preserving or are they just a variation on something widespread common, not as big a concern? And there are various things you can do in studying that. I've done a lot working with DNA to try to answer this type of question. But how do we try to guess ahead of time what's going to be something likely to be important if we haven't studied them thoroughly, whether we don't have the time or resources, or what's something that's worth targeting to study in the first place? And as my work has gone on, it's really highlighted that the geographic patterns re reflecting geologic history and the evolutionary patterns provide important clues. So <clears throat> anybody see anything wrong with this picture here? Souvenir of Florida and a bunch of shells here. Uh, the whole bunch is probably from the Philippines. <clears throat> uh, possibly a little more familiar. How about this? <clears throat> Fair number of people know that this one's from China and that Africa. Of course, orangutan would be South Asia, so maybe a couple countries over from that. The tiger could overlap either with the panda or the orangutan. Macaw is neotropic, South America, well, they're extinct in the Caribbean, and Latin America, cockatoos, Australia. Um, monkey with a prehensile tail is going to be South America also. <clears throat> in fact, observing the different patterns of organisms in different parts of the world was a very important influence on the development of evolutionary theory, both Wallace and Darwin from traveling in, in different parts of the world and seeing the different animals were prompted to think about evolution. And in fact, uh, right about here between Bali and Lompoc in Indonesia is now referred to as Wallace's Line, a major biogeographic divide between areas that during low sea level have been connected to the Asian mainland versus areas that at low sea level would and having more connection with Australia and New Guinea region. 
So the overall pattern we see in biogeography, areas that are more isolated, and isolation is going to depend on how a given species is able to get around and also changes over geologic time. But greater isolation tends to provide greater differences. This takes place at many different scales. You have entire continents. Australia as an island is nicely isolated and has all sorts of weird things there. But also, love my work, you go from one river to the next and see different snails and clams, and for that matter, fish, other things as well. This pattern fits in well with what we'd expect if the organisms have been created generally by evolving from whatever organisms were able to get there and survive. This has been attempted attacking in some context by saying, well, you've got all the marsupials in Australia, but that's the only example. <clears throat> um, this is basically a case of attacking the textbook. It's a textbook example because offhand knowing different mammals is the only really worldwide group of organisms that many people know much about. Um, that happens to be something that really interests me. So when I saw this, I thought for a little bit and came up with about 40 examples. Of course, you can't really expect the textbook to give their example from Permian bivalves from Brazil. I could, but it wouldn't be reasonable of me. Um, <clears throat> In particular, Australia, not only do you have lots of marsupials there, but the birds, the plants, herps, fish, insects, the <clears throat> freshwater and terrestrial mollusks, just about everything there is quite distinctive. Uh, there was also the claim that the Australian marsupial example didn't hold up because we've got possums here. Well, the possum recently got to North America from South America they're a very different group of marsupials, and there are all sorts of other interesting marsupials and things that were in South America before it was connected to North America. Um, in fact, South America and Australia did have a connection geologic past in the Eocene. For that matter, Eocene, you had marsupials in other parts of the world, too. It's, the argument's not really reflecting the overall geologic history, a rather superficial response. As it turns out, it actually does match up, however, with the Bible, incidental science there. Animals mentioned in the Bible actually lived in ancient Palestine. Some of them have gone locally extinct since then, but they were there, whereas the Book of Mormon has a nice patch about it coming here and finding all the standard old world prominent organisms that weren't here. Focusing on conservation, what does biogeography point to on priorities? Well, at a global scale, isolated areas tend to be very high endemicity. I already mentioned Australia. Madagascar is also very famous for its endemics. Hawaii has the largest number of endangered species of any state because of all the native things that aren't doing so well with the invasive species. At a more local scale, it's not been often appreciated as well as to how this can help in thinking about conservation. And part of it, you've got something kind of looks similar, but found only over here and over there. You might get a little suspicious that maybe those two aren't really the same thing. There may be some cryptic species difference. And also, even if they are all the same species, it's generally thought 
that often the more isolated populations may have some unique genetic features and are therefore valuable for conservation as providing some genetic diversity able to respond to uh, future conditions. Um, examples of patterns I've found <clears throat> and working with freshwater mollusks in general, mollusks aren't really known for getting around real fast. Uh, snails actually usually are faster than clams, except when the baby clam is parasitic on a fish. And so they're generally pretty good indicators. They don't move around so fast. And what I found in this study, uh, basically what we're looking at is in this, things that are the same color are tending to form groups within here. And then also we've got this multicolored group, but it includes nearby drainages. The mussels from these couple of rivers here are related to these and those over here. The ones uh, here, Apalachicola system, are related to the ones way down in the Suwannee River here. And so it turns out what river you're in is a very good indicator of what kind of mussels. And actually, it's better than the shape. We have, these are ones from the Coosa River. Hopefully, the species are still with us. Uh, but got these very long and somewhat more short, rounded forms. We also have those two different shapes present, say, up in Tennessee River. But it turns out the two Tennessee River shapes are more closely related to each other. And these more closely related to each other. So what river you're in is one of the most important things for identifying freshwater mussels. Group of snails out in the west coast region, Juga is the genus here. Uh, partly we see isolation. The traditional classification over here had them grouped into certain groups that were kind of some here, some there, kind of irregular broad patterns Turning out with the DNA, we have much more geographic restriction to the major groups. But there are a few that come out a little funny here. Here's one that occurs partly out in the Great Basin in a couple of springs, and then partly up at the upper end of the Pitt River, which connects up down this way. Well, if you look back to the Pleistocene, during glacial times, instead of being Great Basin Desert, we had great big lakes out in Nevada, Utah. Of course, Great Salt Lake's a remnant of that sort of thing. And so there was more water and connections here. There's also been a few rearrangements. Anybody know the last volcano in the lower 48 before Mount St. Helens? <clears throat> Mount Lassen early 1900s is right about in here. So we have very recent volcanic activity rearranging things. Uh, of course, West Coast generally tectonic activity, plus these big lakes coming and going. And so even though today we have different isolated systems, the past conditions point to how we could have these snails all relatively closely related. And overall, the DNA data are suggesting there are a number of previously unrecognized species like this little brownish juga here. 
The latest group I've been working on are these snails, genus Campylloma, and the picture got rather more messy. <clears throat> now, at a global level, it turns out to be pretty nice. South Asian, Australian ones, all together Africa, all together East Asia, all together North America, where well, we've got three groups here, Europe. So there's pretty good patterns. But when we look a little more closely, we've got some problems on the traditional, what the shell looks like classifications. True Bellamias from Africa, this group here, but we've got Bengalensis, that's from India, and one from China that were called Bellamia, but they fall out in different groups. It turns out that just looking at the shell similarity was misleading, and the geography is more reliable. These here, the Sepanga palladinas, they've been suggested they should be called Bellamia, but again, those are Asian originally. Um, they are also invasive now in North America. And so, again, they don't actually match up with the original African form. Similar problem down here, true viviparous in Europe doesn't quite match as well with the ones called viviparous here. Invasive species is another issue that ties in significantly with biogeography, knowing that we've kind of got a set of things that have evolved into a reasonably stable network of organisms in one place, adding things from other places can potentially disrupt it. These particular species actually don't seem to have caused as much disruption as certain others, but it's a major consideration, also particularly with snails. They're good intermediate hosts of certain other parasites and can raise issues that way. When I focused in on Campylloma, however, I ran into some more confusing things. So we have, in blue, these are kind of across the middle of Alabama. Red ones here, North Alabama, and then in with the middle of Alabama, we have Michigan, Illinois, New Jersey. Um, there's something not matching up here. Uh, eventually got some specimens from Mississippi and East Tennessee also falling out in that group, and then that's suggesting, well, maybe they kind of go around. It's just the North Alabama and some things elsewhere around Florida South Central that are the funny ones. But it turns out to be even more complicated. Uh, mitochondrial DNA is inherited just from the mother. It turns out these two, even though you've got very short spire here, tall one here, their mitochondria are the same. Well, <clears throat> try looking at nuclear genes. Unfortunately, not well documented in snails, so a bit of a problem there, but I was able to get some data. And they aren't so similar on the nuclear gene I was able to look at. So there's been something funny going on here. In fact, this one in here had two different versions of nuclear genes, one more like some of the others up here and one more like some of the others down here. Turns out that these particular snails have a number of hybrid lineages some of them are polyploid, multiple gene sets in them. And so you've got complications there, plus the possibility of a more complicated route, given that I've got 
lots of data in Alabama, but rather patchy for the rest of the country. So these, still the patterns are looking very complicated and haven't sorted it all the way out. Some of the recommendations coming out of that. One problem that's highlighted is that currently our endangered species approach is largely a species-by-species species issue. And this kind of neglects the fact that species live in habitats. And so trying to identify important habitats and protect them is not entirely supported by a current pattern. Um, also, especially if you have multiple different species all in a single area, identifying here's one species, here's another species doesn't really highlight that. A couple of examples with the freshwater. Now, before endangered species in Alabama power, the one thing that Alabama looked kind of good on, the talks from the um, alternative power sources was lots of hydropower. Well, that's because folks like Alabama Power and TVA and all went through and put a continuous series of dams across all big and some small rivers in the area. But this meant that in the Coosa River, they wiped out about three genera and 50 species of mollusks. <clears throat> uh, today, Clinch River up in western Virginia, northeast Tennessee, very high concentration of rare freshwater species. It's been widely recognized as a major concentration of things, but there's not the political will to stop the coal companies from dumping whatever they want in the river and things like that. And so it's continued to slowly decline. Conestoga River, um, northwest Georgia into the very corner of Tennessee. It's mainly the regulation of the river hydroelectric power downstream, not directly on the Conestoga, but because the hydroelectric is basically, oh, there's power demand, <clears throat> turn on the river, less power demand, turn off the river. So that gives you alternate flood and drought, and the flood erodes the channel down. So even though the Conestoga doesn't have the dam on it, downstream is getting the channel worn down so much that the Conestoga is eroding faster to match what it's flowing into. Also, you've got poor land use that has dirt eroding from farm fields into the river, things like that. <clears throat> there is a current attempt to try to encourage identifying a set of species with similar needs to propose for listing, not just here's one species, here's another species. That does address some of these issues but perhaps a better model might be to have a way of listing here's a habitat that's endangered rather than just a species. And they do have a system like that in Australia that might be a useful model to think about. And in the evolutionary history and the geological history of an area provide some important information helping us identify priorities in our caring for creation. Uh, so acknowledgement, so the, a number of different co-workers on these various projects and different muscles. Um, Timothy there in the picture, he collected one of the snails I got DNA from not too long ago. So 
Okay, so thank you. Yes, uh, and it depends very much on the sort of species. A lot of the most conspicuous endangered species we think about are big and fuzzy, and as such, they tend to require fairly large areas of certain types. But there are also a lot of things, especially a lot of the plants and invertebrates, that are very specialized on a particular habitat. So, for example, certain plants that require a rare soil type associated with one type of rock. And identifying, here's a very unusual type of habitat that has certain specialized species would help those out well. Um, one, it's pretty well recognized now, but like the longleaf pine environment in southeastern U.S. once was extremely widespread, Maryland down through Mississippi or so, but it's been heavily modified and there's a whole suite of species specialized for that type of habitat that now includes a number of listed species but recognize that the habitat as a whole is something we need to conserve. To some degree, it's gotten at by using existing listed species as kind of umbrellas that, <clears throat> okay, here's a species that's rare that requires all that. If we can say this should be protected, we want to protect the whole habitat. But it varies as to how well the habitat has been protected. Like there was a big fuss about listing the Alabama sturgeon. Uh, for one thing, it may already be extinct, which is kind of poor excuse. But <clears throat> anyway, now there's already listed mussels in that same area of river, but there was a big fuss about how terrible this would be for business like the area isn't already in terrible economic shape anyway and didn't really have significant business that was going to be affected. But the habitat wasn't necessarily well protected already.